Welcome to this edition of NACA's American Dream Podcast, the production of the Neighborhood Assistance Corporation of America. I'm again today with NACA founder and CEO Bruce Marks. Bruce, thank you again for being here. It's great to be with you. I tell you what, we're having some great conversations here. One of the things that fascinates me most about this organization is its history, how it all evolved and how it has been built from that start with the Hotel Workers Union in Boston that we talked about last time to where it is today and, and the major force that it has become in this country. Give us a little bit of the background. Give us a quick refresher on, on how things started with the Hotel Workers Union and tell us how those steps built over the years. Well, you know, let me take a step back from that and say, you know, um, it was built, so, so I'm a product of the 1970s, you know, you know, fighting for economic justice, the civil rights. So, um, you know, I didn't, I had some involvement with that, but not, not a lot. But, you know, but it changed how I thought of things. Uh, so, you know, I said, I, you know, I wanted to be, you know, fighting for civil rights and, you know, equal rights and thought, you know, felt that is in my gut and that was important. So I, uh, you know, went, I have an undergraduate in economics out of UConn and then, uh, you know, worked for the government for, for a bit. And then uh, I went to business school to learn the enemy. So I went to NYU business school and I did, uh, I did that and also was doing an MA in politics there. So it, it was a joint degree. But I, did, I went there to learn the enemy. And so in business school, you know, you know, and you know, this is con considered a pretty good business school, and it was like the training ground for Wall Street. And you know, so you would go there, and and the students were not very smart in a lot of ways. They weren't very talented, but they were very good at doing very particular things. So you know, if they were you know trying to you know to do accounting, they were very good on that specific thing or financial. Uh, analysis. They were good at that, but they weren't, but if you take them out of the comfort zone, they weren't very good. But the best class I had, I had two really, really good uh, um, um, classes there. Uh, and by the way, business school was so much easier than doing an MA in politics, because there you had to think, you had to understand concepts, you know, you had to know how to write. So business school was not very difficult. MA in politics was extremely challenging, <laughs> believe me. So the best courses I took in um, business school was one was an accounting course. So they gave us 10 um, companies. E each person in the class had 10. And they would, you, would, you would have the, um, uh, the public records for each one. So you have their annual reports, their 10Ks, the, the perspectives, all those things, all the public documents. They say five of them did well, three went bankrupt, two were on the verge. And this is the public records. So, you know, so from that you can really tell the story. So I learned how to read their material, the details of what these companies were putting out to their stockholders and to the SEC and to the regulators and to figure out and to tell the story about how the company was doing and what its um, future was likely to be. The other course I took was uh, a negotiating course. And you know, so only a few people who were, uh, got the top grades at N NYU were able to get into this course. 
So I, 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 I did pretty well, but I wasn't at the top level. But I was so relentless to the professor <laughs> that, you know, I was just, I just hounded him, you know. To make a long story short, uh, I did pretty well in the class because I figured out that these NYU business students were not very good or smart about thinking outside the box. Also, it taught me that the premise of negotiations back then was this book called Getting to Yes. And Getting to Yes was, a, was where you would say, you'd look at each party's position and you'd find common ground. And then you would compromise to meet to get to a solution and everybody wins. That's not reality. Reality of negotiations, and I, then I learned this later on when I was w working with the hotel workers, with, uh, Local 26, and with Dominic Bizzotto, the president, which we'll talk a little bit, but was you get what you're strong enough to take. So if you're strong on the issues that you're strong about, either organizing or involvement of people and all that, you, you do that, and if you're doing that, then you can win. And then when you win, then you say, okay, you win, and then you can make it sound like everybody wins. But this romantic idea that you have these two sides, you come to a common ground and everybody wins, is not reality. Someone wins, someone loses, and then you come together, and then you sort of make nice because you need to work with them in uh, the future. So that's why I started with uh, going to business school. So I said, well, I still needed to know more about the enemy. So then, uh, then I decided, okay, let me apply for the job of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, the Fed, in the domestic applications area. Yeah, that's, so, that would be learning the enemy, yeah. So I said, okay, well, and so I, I remember that you know, interview because the first interview I had where I applied to work for Mellon Bank, and I didn't get that, and the feedback was, you didn't dress properly. Here is uh, a business card to meet with a salesperson at Brooks Brothers to buy the right <laughs> suit. And that was the feedback I got for the, for the job I was rejected at working at Mellon Bank. So I go into the interview at the Federal Reserve and then I look down and I realize I had the wrong pants on with the wrong jacket. It was a mismatch, <laughs> but, but I got the job. So I got the job uh, at, uh, at the Fed, and it was in the domestic applications area, which is a really interesting place to be because everything comes into that, um, uh, that area. So, you know, the financial analysis and the uh, regulatory analysis and all that and the legal analysis all came in and we had to review that. So they taught me the CAMEL analysis, CAMEL. You know, their capital, then how much they have in assets, mm -hmm. then their management, then their, you know, uh, uh, equity, ownership, and how much money they have on cash, liquidity. So they beat that into me, and I learned that, and it was really helpful. And then, you know, so, but then, you know, part of it is that, you know, these banks had to meet their CRA requirements, Community Reinvestment Act requirements. So, uh, um, so, and you were assigned different banks. So I, one of the banks I was assigned to was um, First Jersey. It was one of the bigger banks within New Jersey, and they had an awful community lending record, just an awful one. 
So I, uh, you know, so I said, I'm not going to approve this. Now, the politics of the Fed is that even though I can be overridden, they don't like to override somebody because then you know, they have to justify that. So then I wasn't a team player. So, so I decided, but I had access to all of all the really interesting um, documents. I mean, you know, confidential documents, financial documents. So, you know, I found, I realized that every bank was doing something, every financial institution was doing something illegal. And it was public. What, so, what kind of things were they doing? Can oh, you be a little more specific? They were insider trading, you know, the, re, the uh, directors were getting jobs, they were, they, you know, were getting, you know, other kinds of compensation, they were getting, they were doing illegal activities that were not permitted, different types of lending, you know, they were all that, and if you read the, not just the private, this, the, the documents that we had, but if you read the public ones, you could figure that out because they sort of hid that in, a, you know, different ways. But I had access to that information, so I, I went out to some of the, you know, activists out there, some of the groups that were protesting um, discriminatory and predatory lending. I said, you know, I have access to this. I'll be your whistleblower. I got this. And they said, well, you know, can you show that the banks are engaging in racist, discriminatory lending? I said, well, they're a little bit more sophisticated than that. You know, they use credit scores, they use other reasons. But I, but if you're going to go on a campaign, you've got to figure out the vulnerability of the institution. Now, it might not have anything to do with their racist or their discriminatory lending practices, but you could find their vulnerability. And by finding their vulnerability, then you, could, then you have leverage to deal with the issue that you want to deal with. So I went to them. I said, here it is. I got this. Files and files, and none of them would take it. Because they wanted to say, okay, they wanted to have back then the kind of analysis that someone says, or there's a document that says, I will not lend to you because you're black, you're Hispanic, or you don't, you know, because of discriminatory criteria. My point to them, you can win that campaign, but let's, let's hit them where, they're, where, where you can really hurt them in their vulnerability. So then I took that mindset, I said, well, I'm going to have to figure out a different avenue for that. So then uh, I uh, said, okay, I've been there for two and a half years. You know, they realize I'm not a team player. I learned what I needed to do. It was a revolving door because you stayed there for a period of time and then you would go work for a bank. But I wasn't interested in working for a bank. So I, um, so I applied to different jobs and um, um, I got a job in um, Boston with, uh, um, uh, with um, you know, Neighborhood Reinvestment Corporation, now known as NeighborWorks. But I volunteered uh, for, um, uh, with the Hotel Workers, Workers Union, Dominic Pizzotto, and uh, with um, Mel King, who is just a tremendous uh, African-American advocate uh, in Boston. I mean, he is just uh, uh, a hero and just a, an icon in Boston. So I was working, so I was doing the volunteer work with uh, the, uh, the Hotel Workers, Workers Union. So they're doing this campaign in um, 1985. Uh, so what happened was um, 
I'm, you know, they're going through the uh, negotiations and I'm on Channel 7 News uh, in Boston when I told uh, the people I'm working with at, I think, um, Margot Kelly, who worked for Neighborhood Reinvestment Corporation, that I was in Rutland, Vermont, doing their work. <laughs> so they called me into the office okay. and they said, uh, uh, where were you um, <laughs> yesterday? I said, oh, I'm in Rutland, Vermont. Well, well, the camera seemed to show that you were in downtown <laughs> yeah. Boston doing this interview. I said, maybe, you have a twin brother? You know, <laughs> maybe your passion is you know, not quite here. And, uh, and I wasn't too thrilled with, uh, with uh, what's now uh, NeighborWorks. And there was a lot of talk, but not a lot of action uh, to do that. So then I started working with the Hotel Workers Union. And uh, I can keep going. You want me to keep on going? Till <laughs> so? so I figured that I was going to be um, a uh, you know, union organizer. But I, you know, I, I had this background in finance and in business, but I said, oh, well, you know, that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be, I'm going to be a union organizer. So uh, then one day, uh, um, uh, um, Dominic Pizzotto, who's head of the union, uh, and it's a progressive union fighting for, you know, workers' rights. It takes over from the old guard that was from South Boston and Charleston, which really a racist. Uh, mindset and they represented that group within the hotel. It was a minority of people within the group within the hotels, but it, it ran the union. So the union now became uh, a union that was representing minority workers, which are the majority within the, within the hotels, and um, women who were the majority within the hotels. So one, one uh, day Dominic yells out, does anybody know about finance? Because there's this guy, his name was, was Joe Timelty, and he, you know, was, uh, he, 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 he eventually ran for mayor, and he went to jail eventually. But, uh, but uh, he uh, said, I got $5 million in union pension monies. And he was going around the city saying, you know, how are you going to invest the $5 million? Well, it turns out he was talking about $5 million of the hotel workers, local 26 pension monies, but no one had said it to Dominic or anybody that he was going around saying this. Okay. So, you know, Dominic said, does anybody know about this? And I said, yeah, I mean, you know, I have a background in finance and business. And he said, okay, well, you deal with this, right? So we, we decided that we were going to uh, uh, build housing and use this pension money, not with Joe Timothy, but to, to do it, uh, a, um, you know, to invest in building affordable housing. So we did this thing called uh, the Dacia Block. It was, uh, it was a housing, affordable ho housing development, but we didn't know the politics. And we weren't good at it. So the developers knew the politics, so we did everything right, but we didn't get that bid. But then we said, well, why don't we negotiate for a housing benefit for hotel workers? Uh, and so that, because people should have the opportunity to live to close to where they work. Mm -hmm. Makes sense to him, right? So we said, okay, we make sense, and you know, we can we uh, can negotiate around wages and benefits, and even educational benefits and legal benefits. Why not housing? So we said we're going to build for this for the 1988 contract negotiations. So we started to put the word out, and the demand was huge. I mean, people within the hotel workers they just love the idea, so that you know money can be used for down payment 
or uh, um, for down payment or for closing costs and makes sense. Problem is, it was illegal. That within the Taft-Hartley Act, you know, you know, it states for what items and issues you're able to uh, negotiate over. And they're called permissive subjects of bargaining. And if it's not a permissive subject of bargaining, you can't even talk about it in terms of the negotiations. Can't even bring it up. So what we did is we brought it up. It was illegal. Clearly, it was illegal. But he said, this is fundamental to economic justice and for what this union stands for. And the demand and the interest among the union membership was just huge, was massive. So we got the hotel owners to actually negotiate for this. So we got them not just to, not just to negotiate, but to agree to it. But then they put a clock on it. So they said that, you know, you know, yes, we agree that we're going to put money into a housing trust fund. Never been done before. Never been done. Uh, but we have 18 months to get the federal labor law changed. And they said, ah, that ain't going to happen. That would never happen. So what you were trying to do was going to literally require an act of Congress. <laughs> and we did. So what we did is, but, but we figured out, being that we were... Um, somewhat naive in this uh, of uh, this um, you know process but also relentless it was just, so we go to the AFL-CIO and uh, Lane Kirkland who is there and so we we go down there we bring you know two to three hundred union members there so we're in we're in uh, Washington DC and we're in the lobby and you know I go up with Dominic and some of some of some of the union leaders to meet with Lane Kirkland and his, uh, his uh, lieutenants, and he says, well, guys, you're a little small local union, and I run the AFL-CIL, I run the Federation, and nothing gets done in Washington without it being a zero-sum game, meaning you, to get something, you gotta give up something. So, and, and, and he pats us on the head, you know, almost literally, <laughs> and he says, you're never gonna get it done, you know, we got bigger issues, you know. We got the trade unions. We got bigger issues that we want to get done. Nah, it's not going to get done. So we have a demonstration downstairs uh, in the lobby. We said, well, we're going to we're going to get this thing done, but we had 18 months to do it. So we got on board um, uh, Senator Kennedy and Congressman Moakley, but also uh, a number of Republican senators and um, and. Um, um, Congress people from around the country. So it was a broad coalition of both Republicans and Democrats, and we did what no local union had ever done before. What we did is that we, you know, put together that, that coalition and we changed the Taft-Hartley Act. And so that was the first change in the Taft-Hartley Act in like 30 years, and the first President Bush signs it into law. So I said, that's it. I mean, I'm the pinnacle of uh, what I could ever accomplish, uh, you know, everything is going to be, I still want to work, you know, and be, you know, an organizer for the union, but, you know, I will never get to that level. That, that you had peaked early. I had peaked, <laughs> and it was a great peak because that had never been done before. So then we, we, uh, we uh, you know, said, okay, now we have this housing trust fund. Let's, uh, you know, make it work. But we couldn't make it work because the lenders were not lending. So obviously, you know, there's a lot of attention to this. So we've gotten a lot of media on this stuff. Harvard Business School, 
they write a case study on it and all this. So we got a lot of attention. And then I get a call from this individual, Miles Iyamu. Miles calls me and he said, do you know about hard lending? And you know, I said, no, I, I have no idea. Well, Miles was a broker in Dorchester. He was a, uh, and he said, well, let me tell you about hard lending. And he, for two and a half years, we, we got all the information on what's now known as predatory lending. And you know, how these lenders were, you know, were targeting the minority community and just charging ridiculously high usury interest rates, just abusive interest rates. Uh, and you know, so we did all this research. No one knew that we were doing this research. Uh, and then, you know, um, the first campaign was the home equity scam, where these contractors were targeting minority homeowners, often elderly, claiming to do construction work and not doing it well and stealing the equity out of their homes, just stealing the equity. So they, they would sign an agreement where they would get a second, you know, a home equity loan. The work wasn't done properly and they'd, they'd steal the home. And then that's where we coined the term predatory lending back in uh, the late um, 1980s. So NACA, and we, you know, we coined the term predatory lending. At that point, we were known as UNAC. The uh, Union Neighborhood Assistance Corporation changed into, uh, changed into um, NACA down the road. So after that, we took on the campaign against Fleet. And Fleet was one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, predatory lenders in uh, the country, based in um, Providence, Rhode Island. Well, Rhode Island back then was known, uh, if you thought about Rhode Island, one of the things you thought about was the mob. So, uh, you know, uh, that's one of the things that you thought. So, you know, there were some shady dealings uh, in that because when you look at uh, Fleet and you did the research, and we're always good at doing the research because we figured out, you know, my uh, experience with, um, uh, with my background working, doing an MBA and working at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and all that says, you know, you need the ammunition, and research is the ammunition. What did you find? So what we found was that Fleet Finance was funding Fleet's corporate operation, that they were providing 55% of the revenues for the corporation. And Fleet Finance was uh, a very dubious organization, to say the least. Uh, and they're based actually in Georgia. Uh, and. Uh, they were in the furniture financing business to begin with, and they got into the mortgages. And uh, we did this campaign. It took it was a four and a half year war against Fleet. I mean, it was you know, and it was a dangerous fight. I mean, they you know, there's some people who uh, were killed in in that. They found them asphyxiated in uh, in their cars and stuff, and some some other things. Uh, I got a lot of death threats. Um, actually, outside my house, it was almost—it was almost amusing. In the, in, in the middle of the winter, there's a car parked right outside my house, uh, and there's two guys in there in the middle of winter, Tim, with sunglasses, uh, <laughs> okay. with with just sunglasses, you know, right out there. So you know, but we had a lot of media on this. So you know, there was a big piece that we were able to get done with 60 Minutes and all that, but it was it was pretty intense. We were relentless. I mean, so we, you know, their CEO, Terry Murray, we went after him. We went after him personally. 
Uh, he wanted to run for a Senate, and we blocked that. Uh, we got the Federal Reserve. They had refused to uh, investigate. I mean, even though they, um, they regulated uh, you know, fleet, they refused to look into fleet finance. But the head of the OCC uh, was Gene Ludwig, and a good guy. And so I got, so we asked him to look into it. So he sent us a letter, which, you know, a public letter, saying that the OCC, the Office of the Comptroller Currency, was going to look into, uh, investigate fleet, which is a huge deal. So we did, did it against that. And then I got a call from the Federal Reserve and says, you know, we uh, want you to protest that, to put in a claim, to put in a complaint against fleet. And when you had to do this by this date, right? So I said, no, 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 I, I uh, understand the process. I'm going to go by your process. So the, the uh, date passed, and, uh, and then they um, said, you know, so then we put it in after the, after the deadline. So the, federal, the, the, so the board of the Federal Reserve had to, um, that they had to change the rules to allow the protest. So here we're doing the campaign. We had documented how fleet uh, cordons off a community. How they say we will not lend to the to a minority community uh, on conventional terms. But then the documents that showed uh, that showed what the interest rates were were um, showed that they would charge 35, 40 percent. How did we get those um, uh, documents? Well, it turns out that in Georgia, that uh, uh, we worked with uh, this one attorney, his name was Jack Long. And Jack Long, uh, he was out of the Augusta area. He, he was this uh, old-time uh, uh, great guy, uh, old-time lawyer, right? You know, so he wasn't like these fancy Boston, New York lawyers, right? He was not that. He was, you know, you know almost your stereotypical uh, uh, county uh, lawyer, but brilliant. I mean, the guy was just brilliant. So I know you want to wrap this up, he, but no, no, no. He was, he, he, so basically he was kind of Matlock. That's yes, what yeah, and, yeah. And to, so, but what he did is that he um, got a uh, order from the judge where he could get access to all Fleet's loan documents. So he rented a trailer. He put these copiers in, uh, the, in uh, this trailer and he copied every, loan, every one of the loan documents. And Jack Long said uh, that, um, you know, what he said is, hey, we're not gonna win this through the courts. We're gonna win this through the advocacy that you're doing and through the public scrutiny of Fleet. So he understood that, uh, you know, that this is gonna be a bigger campaign than the legal campaign, right? So he says, our job is to give you the ammunition, the research, for you to do the protest, for you to educate the media, for you to involve the public. So we got, we got massive, I mean, tens of millions of loan files to do that. So we could show how Fleet would, you know, they would just say, you're not gonna be able to borrow to the minority community on, on good terms, but we're gonna provide you with predatory terms. So we did this. So now we're still going through the, um, um, the uh, fleet um, campaign, right? So we got Senator Regal 
to who was head of who was chairman of the Senate um, uh, Banking Committee to hold a hearing on fleet. We had over 500 fleet borrowers come. We bust them from around the country, right? 500 of the the uh, of the fleet borrowers go to the hearing, and at the hearing. Um, uh, we take it over. We're singing. We're chanting. We just take over this hearing because they have to find a place for five for 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 for, for five hundred. I was going to say we've we've been in those 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 congressional hearing rooms. They're not that big. Oh, they don't but, hold five hundred people. But but uh, but uh, we uh, but but we got them to do it. So so it was amazing. So you know I was going to testify. I testified. But they had all you know the banks and all that. And it was Senator Kerry who who held the water for Fleet. So he was the one guy, I mean, Alphonse D'Amato, a Republican, was supportive. Others were supportive, but not, Senator Kerry, our senator from Massachusetts, John you know, carried the water for Fleet. But, you know, so, so we're doing the hearings and Fleet, uh, they hired this guy, um, uh, John, um, John Hamill, to, um, you know, this established banker, he was to testify for Fleet and say how Fleet was not doing all these things. And so he got up there and said all these things that just were lies, weren't true. And uh, um, so then I ended up testifying and I said, you know, if this was a court of law, um, you would be um, convicted of perjury. And so he gets upset and Brian Moynihan, who's his lawyer, who's, who's now head of uh, Bank of America, was the lawyer back then, he's holding John Hamill back, you know, <laughs> like this. So I, I, you know what, I'm, we're gonna cut it right there because that's a great cliffhanger to leave it on. We'll pick this up in our next episode. It's a great cliffhanger. Okay. Okay. Okay, because <laughs> now, now we gotta talk about what happened at the Federal Reserve that same day. Okay, coming up in our next episode. <laughs> uh, stay tuned for the thrilling conclusion. Bruce, thank you again. It's, it's always great to talk to you about, about the history of this organization, where it's been, and especially we're going to be talking soon about where it's going. This is always a lot of fun. Thanks. Again. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for being here for this edition of NACA's America Dream Podcast. We'll see you soon.